0: Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Search for Captain Slocum by Walter Magnus Teller. We're on chapter three, and this is the third part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 3 The Magnificent Ship On the 3rd of March 1881, in Hong Kong Harbour, on board the Amethyst, Virginia gave birth to a son. In America, it was almost Inauguration Day. The still proud and patriotic parents far from home named the child James A. Garfield. A few days later, Slocum sold the amethyst to move his family into larger quarters. The Northern Light, a three-masted windjammer of 1,800 tonnes register, 220 feet long three decks and five times the size of the ancient amethyst, happened also to be in Hong Kong. Her commander, Captain John E. Kenney, who had brought her out from New York, was also part owner. And there, in the South China entrepot, Slocum acquired Kenney's interest and succeeded him as master of the magnificent ship. The business was transacted in the office of the U.S. Consul, the then very famous Colonel Mosby. Author's note, John Singleton Mosby, 1833 to 1916, lawyer and guerrilla fighter, who surrendered eight companies of equipped and mounted irregulars two weeks after Lee's surrender, had been scarred by sabre wounds. At one time, Northern Virginia was known as Mosby's Confederacy, An admirer and later a friend of Grant, Mosby turned Republican and was appointed to the post in Hong Kong where he served from 1878 to 1885. He wrote two books on his Civil War experiences. Mosby was a former Confederate scout and ranger and he was of course the kind of man who appealed to Slocum and whom the captain was constantly running into, only Virginia, as she later told the children, could not look upon the colonel's cut-up features. Command of the Northern Light marked the zenith of Slocum's first career. I had a right to be proud of her, for at that time, she was the finest American sailing vessel afloat. Though the captain's Northern Light was as beautiful as her name, she should not be confused with the fast clipper ship which, in an earlier generation, had also been called Northern Light. The true clipper days were already gone. After taking command in Hong Kong, Slocum sailed to Manila, where he took on a cargo of sugar, which he then carried westward, around the Cape of Good Hope, to Liverpool. It was early summer of 1882, when, with his wife and four children on board, he sailed into New York Harbour, the Northern Lights' home port. He had brought his ship halfway round the world, and a profitable voyage it had been for master and owners. The stamp of success was on Slocum. All he had set out to do, he had done, An authoritarian by temperament, as well as by family precept and example, he had gained at last his heart's desire. He really was in command. He was making money, and surely had reason to believe he would make still more. He was in love with, and was loved by, his wife. He found in her a perfect companion. He had four thriving children, and he had accomplished all with nothing but his hands and head. Only one thing remained to have his father see he had indeed become a man for perhaps no man finally becomes a man until he proves it in his father's eyes. Father and son had not met since the day when young Josh had left Nova Scotia. Twenty-two years had passed since then. Now, like Joseph in Egypt sending for Jacob, Slocum in New York asked that his ageing parent come see his son in his glory. He sent the old man the money for the trip, for John Slocum still was a fiscal failure. The old farmer, remarried and now retired, he was past seventy, obeyed the summons, and took along a daughter of his second family. He had, of course, never seen his daughter-in-law Virginia, nor the four grandchildren. Father came down to see me in my fine ship Northern Light, Josh wrote years later, but we didn't spend our time talking about fine large ships. Our business was a quarter of a century back, just Joshua, said he. Do you remember the night in the little boat? when we rode all night on a lee shore and the fishing vessels came into port with close-reefed sail. Didn't I remember it? Quite possibly father and son never saw each other again. John Slocum died the 9th of September 1887, while the captain was away on another voyage. The northern light lay at Pier 23, East River, a short way above Brooklyn Bridge, which was not yet open to traffic. Her rig was so lofty that part of it had to be struck to let her pass under the span. Of course, the bridge was being built for the future. Steam was tightening its grip on shipping, and Slocum and the Northern Light were being outmoded. Those were the final hours when masts and rigging in geometric patterns towered over the city. There were, as yet, no tall buildings to dwarf them. A reporter for the New York Tribune went aboard, writing of An American Home Afloat, He described this typical American ship, commanded by a typical American sailor, who has a typical American wife to accompany him on his long voyages, and to make his cabin as acceptable a home as he could have on shore. No one to look at the graceful lines on his vessel, her Yankee rigging and sails, her bold cutwater and her noble stern, could mistake her for anything other than an American ship. A visit to her deck suggests two sad and striking thoughts. One, that American sailing ships are becoming obsolete, and the other that so few American sailors can be found. The tautness, trimness and cleanliness of this vessel, from keelson to truck and from stem to stern, are features not common on merchant ships. The neat canvas cover over the steering wheel bearing, the vessel's name and hailing port, worked with silk, is the handiwork of the captain's wife. Descending to the main cabin, one wonders whether or not he is in some comfortable apartment ashore. Mrs. Slocum sat busily engaged with her little girl at needlework. Her baby boy was fast asleep in his Chinese cradle. An older son was putting his room in order, and a second son was sketching. The captain's stateroom is a commodious apartment, furnished with a double berth, which one might mistake for a black walnut bedstead. A transom upholstered like a lounge, a library, chairs, carpets, wardroom, and the chronometers. This room is above the main cabin, which is furnished like a parlour, in this latter apartment are the square piano, centre table, sofa, easy chairs and carpets, while on the walls hung several oil paintings. In front of the parlour is the dining room, which, together with the other rooms, exhibit a neatness of which only a woman's hand is capable. The captain's baby is the captain's pride and bears an honoured name. About the first distinguishable utterance of the child was Gar. General Garfield acknowledged the compliment in an autograph letter to the child, The letter was read by the father to it, and the child said, Gah! Another eyewitness to the captain's splendour was his half-sister Emma, who had accompanied their father to New York and then stayed on board with the Slocums for some time. The cabin of the Northern Light was fine, she recollected. Everything was there as in a modern apartment. There was a pantry boy, a Filipino, who took care of the pantry work. Very hot days, instead of our going out to eat, the boy was sent to the restaurant on Fulton Street and he would bring back a good supply of food. Virginia was the most kind to me during the weeks I was with them. She took me sightseeing to the historical and art museums, also bought some nice things for me. They took me to Coney Island to hear Sousa's band of 100 pieces. I saw nothing but happiness between Josh and Virginia. I think there was nothing else. They seemed perfectly happy. Captain Josh was a kind, thoughtful, and fine man. On the Northern Light, Virginia taught school for Victor, B. Amar, and Jessie. On Sundays, there were Sunday school lessons. Years later, Jessie recalled how her mother did fancy work, played the piano, harp and guitar, and sang. She was a fine dancer, too. Mother was a remarkable woman. Not many had the stamina she had. There are none today would live as she had to. She lived truly as the Book of Ruth says. Father's scrapbook also played a part in the children's education. Jesse wrote that whenever the captain saw any item that interested him or amused him, he would get out his penknife and that bit of news would be pasted in. He used to do a lot of chuckling over some of them. Father and mother always encouraged us in reading any and all books. One of the cabins of the Northern Light is said to have had a library of 500 volumes and, with its orderly and well-fitted bookcases, looked very much like the study of a literary worker or a college professor. In spite of finely appointed cabins, life on the northern light was not easy. The responsibility was immense. Danger was ever-present. The Tribune reporter had noted how few American seamen could then be found. He was right. Enterprising young men were going west. Malcontents and drifters made up the bulk of the crews in which quality tended to be as poor as composition was diverse. On American ships, one found not only roving adventurers and men seeking to escape the restraints of civilization, but drunkards, vagrants, criminals, and degenerates. By and large, foremost hands were by now recruited from the dregs of society. Set against them were officers who were often brutal and tyrannical. The inexperienced, lazy, sick, and depraved had to be driven to work. Under the circumstances, it took a master of uncommon ability and initiative to handle a ship. He had to counterbalance the inferiority of a large percentage of his shipmates. He needed plenty of courage. Besides navigation and seamanship, he needed to know how to use his fists. And Slocum knew. Some ten years later, a newspaper man described him as being as tough as wrought iron and as lively on his feet as a chicken. His fist is not only big, but has a hard, horny Jim Corbett cast that inspires respect. He is a good shot with a pistol. The Northern Light set sail in August with a cargo of oil bound for Yokohama, but soon after leaving New York, the rudder was found to be out of order, and the ship put into New London, Connecticut for repairs. The incident provided an excuse for the crew, who had been in an ugly mood when shipped, to refuse further duty. This was mutiny. In attempting to seize the ringleader, the chief officer was stabbed and mortally wounded. Virginia sprang to the captain's side. I saw her covering Father with a revolver in each hand during the searching of the crew, B. Amar wrote. The Coast Guard steamed out in response to the signal for help. The wounded man was taken ashore, the mutineer arrested. The rest of the insurgents were locked up on board the ship. By the time the Northern Light was ready to sail again, Captain Slocum had secured a new mate. But he kept the old crew. It was an unfortunate decision, for the Northern Light was to sail around the world, and the Captain was to have trouble all the way. On the voyage out to Yokohama, he rescued a party of five native Gilbert Island missionaries, 600 miles from their home. They had been adrift in an open boat 40 days. Often and often, he wrote later, in the hour of great distress and bitter sufferings, the story of the islanders has come to my thoughts, and I have said, my state is not yet so bad as theirs, nor my condition so woeful as that of the stricken sailors on the pest-ridden bark upon the inhospitable coast. After discharging her cargo and the Gilbert Islanders in Japan, the Northern Light sailed for Manila, where she was loaded with sugar and hemp. From that port on the South China Sea, the ship, bound for Liverpool, sailed through the Sunda Strait, passing by the volcanic island Krakatoa in the Netherlands East Indies, just a few days before it blew up. The eruption began in May, but the proximal explosions did not occur until 26th to 28th August 1883. No man-made explosion has as yet rivalled it. Stones, dust and ashes shot up from the volcano to a height of 17 miles or more, and then fell on surrounding islands so thick as to bury their forests. The sounds were heard for thousands of miles. Waves, 50 feet high, were churned up, and nearby coastal and island villages were swamped. 36,000 lives were lost, and atmospheric conditions disturbed throughout the world. The Northern Light must have sailed by during the time the volcano was active, but before the final upheaval. B. Amar wrote, Had we been three days later in that region, we would have been suffocated by the fumes. Something to think of, anyhow. As it was, the ship sailed for many days through fields of floating pumice stone, and her decks were covered with ashes. Trouble continued on the passage from Manila, as a northern light neared the Cape of Good Hope, heavy seas twisted her rudderhead off. She also began to leak in the topsides. Water got below and melted the sugar in the lower hold, till the ship became so crank that the hemp stowed in the in between decks had to be jettisoned to keep her reasonably upright. Under Jury steering gear she finally made Port Elizabeth. There the cargo was discharged and the ship overhauled. She was laid up two months in the South African port. Once again, an officer had to leave, this time on account of illness. A man named Henry A. Slater, an ex-convict as it turned out, was shipped in his place. It has been said that Slater, before signing on, had arranged with some of the crew to murder Captain Slocum and take possession of the ship. Soon after getting to sea, homeward bound, further trouble occurred. Slater was put in irons, imprisoned and so kept for 53 days, the balance of the passage to New York. The turbulent, round-the-world voyage of the Northern Light had taken a year and a half, but the last of it had not yet been heard by the captain. In New York, the battle begun at sea between Slocum and Slater continued in federal court. On Slater's testimony, the captain was convicted on charges of false and cruel imprisonment. With regard to food, American Merchant Service articles read, Full and Plenty. Slocum was fined $500, which his underwriters paid. Slater also entered a civil suit for damages but ended it suddenly before it could be brought into court. The Boston Herald carried the report. New York, January 12th, 1884. Henry Arthur Slater called on Mr B. S. Osborne, editor of the Nautical Gazette today, and said he had suffered all he wanted to and had had enough. He said that if Mr. Osborne would hear what he had to say, he would make a clean breast of everything. So Mr Osborne heard Slater, whose words were taken down in shorthand and sworn to before the editor, who is also a notary public. They were in substance as follows. I was late second officer on board the ship Northern Light, of which Joshua Slocum was master. On a voyage from Port Elizabeth, South Africa, to New York, I was confined as a prisoner by order of the said Slocum, and I was accordingly put in irons and confined as above stated, I heard Chief Mate Mitchell tell Captain Slocum that I had said that I would kill Captain Slocum and his wife if I ever got out of irons. I believe that was the reason I was kept so closely confined. Since I have been at Liberty, I have found out that Captain Slocum ordered me to be brought up on deck every day and that I should have sufficient food and water every day. Mitchell told Captain Slocum that if I was brought up on deck, I would create a mutiny and murder all the afterguards. I do not blame Captain Slocum for the treatment I received. I never gave my authority to enter a civil suit against Captain Slocum and I do not wish the suit to proceed. I now see that both Captain Slocum and myself have been made the dupes of the very men who ought to have protected us and that the whole affair is made to get money out of Captain Slocum to be distributed among them. Slater said he came voluntarily, said Mr Osborne. He said he had put Slocum in a bad hole, and was in an equally bad hole himself. He said he did not know what he had been doing. He had signed lots of papers, but did not know what they were. The aftermath of the voyage of the Northern Light hurt Slocum. It cost him money, for he had to defend himself in suits with Slater, and in others arising out of the New London affair. While his time was taken up in this way, another master had to be engaged for the ship, and if these suits did not hurt his reputation, a debatable point, they were certainly calculated to do so. As a commander, what sort of reputation did he have? The editor of the Nautical Gazette, who took Slater's affidavit, said that Slocum was an A1 man, a genuine Yankee captain of high reputation. The Tribune reporter described the captain as one of the most popular commanders sailing out of this port, both on account of his general capability and his kindness to his crew. The marine historian Frederick C. Matthews wrote that Slocum while a strict disciplinarian, requiring immediate obedience to orders, was also of a kind disposition and a fair, just man. A seaman who had served under the captain said Captain Slocum was considered a hard man, but no one ever felt unsafe under his command. Slocum's self-appraisal was, I'm not a martinet, but I have my own ideas on how to run a ship. The old shipmasters treated their crews like intelligent beings, giving them plenty of leeway, But holding them with a strong hand in an emergency. That's my style." Not long after her return to New York there was a change of ownership of the Northern Light and Slocum disposed of his interest. The ship needed overhauling, but with steam cutting into sail it could not be done at a profit, and eventually the proud ship wound up her days as a coal barge, ignominiously towed by the nose from port to port. The voyage brought changes for Slocum too, He had, perhaps, as master, made serious mistakes of judgement. In any case, he never thereafter regained his financial status. A career, begun so well, had reached its high point. The long downgrade now began. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and The Mariner Podcast, and of course Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.